1 through 8. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 8 will form really our subject title today, which we are going to call The Lament of the Redeemed. Read it with me again. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. I hope reading that twice just rung your bell a little bit. If you're a child of God, it should. That should be a flame that just reading kindled up a little bit. I hope the wick just went up on your lamp a little bit as a child of God by reminding you of that. As you know, the psalmist David was all about praising God. I'm using common language when I say that. All of God's people should be about praising God. But what I'm referring to is if you were to just take a concordance and turn to the word praise, and there are several words for praise in the Old Testament, of course different Greek words in the New Testament, you would be immediately overwhelmed by the number of times the word praise shows up in the Psalms. I mean, we know David used that word more extensively than anybody in the Bible and mostly in the Psalms. I mean, if you have read the Psalms, you know the Psalms are all about praising God. Some of them are songs, and again, others are narrative, but nevertheless, David was about praising God. Maybe this, in his zeal for praising and worshiping and and fellowshipping and adoring God, is why God said he was a man after mine own heart. That's a great thing, a great compliment, is it not? So may we be zealous of praising God as his people. The lament of the redeemed. This same reading in verse 8 shows up four times in this chapter. And I don't want you to read through this chapter while we're preaching. Read it after we go. you get home. You'll have be good study time, all right? But uh, four times it appears. He repeats it. It's in verse 8, our text, verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. So it has about seven verses, and there it is, about seven more, and there it is, and then about 15 or 16, and there it is again, and then about 10, and there it is again. So there are things in between each one of those, just like the verses that we read here, that remind us of why we have this lament of men praising God for his goodness and wonderful works. What is a lament? You have a book in your Bible called called Lamentations. It's by Jeremiah. It follows after the book of Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and lamentations are just that. They are the grief or sorrow or an expression of grief and sorrow, and Jeremiah called the weeping prophet, and those that little brief book is the lamentations of Jeremiah. So we can express or feel grief or sorrow for many reasons, as some are today. It's natural for that to happen. But the lamentation of the redeemed, as they are identified in verse 2, is that all men would praise God for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. And I might just begin by asking you present here today and those that may be hearing this, do you have that desire? The redeemed have that desire. If you're a child of God, you want to praise God. And you see the wonderful works of God. You know the wonderful works of God. You know that God is good. You don't have to read it on the page and wonder about it. You know from experience that God is good. That God has been good, God is good, and God will be good because God does not change. So that is a litmus test of your own soul, we might say. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Do you desire that? Do you lament that? That's a proof of salvation. Now the sad part is that we also know, if we know that as children of God, that as sinners, sinners are not naturally inclined to praise God for His goodness and His wonderful works, are we? How sad. It is a tremendous tragedy, is it not? That God can be so good and man can be so negligent and unthankful. But this is what sin has done to us all. And when we were without God and without Christ in the world, that's exactly where we were. We were blinded to God's goodness and to God's wonderful works to the children of men. Even though all our lives, every human being has been a recipient and is a recipient. Of God's goodness. Makes me think of the scriptures in the Bible that speak of the creation itself praising God. And there's quite a few scriptures like that, figurative language. And one outstanding one in the New Testament you might remember is the account in Luke 19 when Christ came into Jerusalem when he would be betrayed eventually within a week and crucified, unjustly condemned, etc. We call it the triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was riding upon the foal of the ass that no man had ever set, when they were laying palm trees down and they were speaking and whether it was a chant or a continuation of repetition saying praise to the king and so forth and so on. And it was quite a commotion to say the least. And in that account, I'm being brief here for time's sake, the Pharisees and Sadducees told Jesus, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're just, they're just making too big a commotion here. About them. Of course, they didn't like any commotion about Jesus. And Jesus uttered these words, why, if I told them to be quiet, the stones would start crying out in praise. That's something to think about, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said that. You say, could it really happen? You bet it could happen. Anything can happen. With God, all things are possible. Yeah, if these should hold their peace, why, even the stones would cry out and praise to God. 
In the Old Testament, we read such things as the mountains and the trees and the floods clapping their hands and things like that. That the creation, you get the idea, as I read those scriptures, I got the idea that the creation would like to just burst forth and do that. But God restrains inanimate objects from doing that. And yet He demands it of all of His creatures who are humans, and they're totally unwilling to do that. Isn't that ironic? That the stones could do that, but man, who is the most blessed of all creation, refrains and is unwilling to do that. Well, that's the truth of the matter, isn't it? That's the great damage sin has done that the creature cannot of its own self without divine assistance render adequate praise, glory, adoration, and worship to the Creator. But God has made that possible, hasn't He? And we rejoice in that. We're here today and we can praise God. And we don't just praise God here and don't think that. We praise God all the time, whenever, wherever, whatever. That's the saints of God. That's the redeemed. First point, very elementary, very simple, but I want to remind you, God deserves to be praised. Now, I can't put your name there, and I can't put my name there, but we can put God's name there and say God deserves to be praised. And the first reason I would give you of why God deserves to be praised is simply this. It's not prof- it is profound, but it's very simple. Because He's God. That's it. I mean, we could stop right there. I'll try to expound that point a little bit, but that's it. Simply because God is God, not only means He deserves praise... But he literally demands praise because of who he is. It is demanded. Read with me in Isaiah 46. And I think this will make the point, although we could spend a lot of time here, but we don't have it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. That's it. That's it. No need to divvy up the praise. I'm God. There's none else. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring. Who is God? Here He is. He declares the end from the beginning. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning. From ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's God. He is the eternal, self-existing I Am. That demands praise. We praise things, do we not, that are exceptional? Usually that's what men do, or they think is exceptional. Well, let me tell you, God goes beyond exceptional. Unique, none like Him, above and beyond everything else combined, God is God. And as he said, in his greatness, in his creation, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, as the psalmist says, and the psalmist said it in 18 and 3, God is worthy to be praised. And he is the only 
one who is truly worthy to be praised. If you're still in Isaiah, let's just jump back to the 40th chapter for a moment. And uh, again, some things just we'll highlight jumping through here that remind us of the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the eternality of God, etc. Compared human beings, mankind, humanity, compared to God. Verse 6, all flesh is grass. All the goodliness thereof, the flower of the field. That's not saying much for humanity from beginning to end, is it? That's in comparison to God. Grass withers, flower fades. God always has been and always will be. No beginning, no end. God's Word as God stands forever, yet we're just a vapor that appears and then quickly disappears. Verse 10, the Lord God has a strong hand. His arm rules. Verse 11, He feels His flock. Feeds his flock, carries them, leads them. Verse 12, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. I'm not a fan of the ocean. Never have been, never will be. I'll be glad there's going to be no more, no sea in heaven. I just, it just doesn't do nothing for me. I know it's a necessary component and I appreciate that. But the last thing I'd want to do would be a seafaring individual. I'd be the most miserable person in the world. But, when you just go to a little beach somewhere on the Gulf, you're just looking at the tip of the iceberg with a human eye. And I mean, we look at a globe, you know, which gives us an image of the expanse of waters upon the face of the earth. It's unimaginable. And it says, our God is such a being that He measures them in the hollow of His hand. Just like you and I would just stick our hand in to get a little sup of water. That's it. He weigheth the mountains and scales, the hills and a balance. <laughs> this is God. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point here, but what can you think of that being begin? Nothing. This is beyond Anything we can think of. All the nations drop in a bucket. Verse 15. Verse 17. The nations are nothing. Verse 18. Who will you liken God? Because He is God, He is worthy to be praised. And because He is God, He is good. And there's numerous things I could say, but I'm going to be brief. But God is good. We just read it. Not only is it declared, not only has He said it, but He has manifested and you'd have to be an absolute fool not to admit it. But many are because they're lost. We were foolish one time. We didn't know the goodness of God. God created, God made everything good, and He was good especially to whom? Mankind. Because, as we said in Sunday school, He set man over the pinnacle of His creation at the very top. Made man in His very likeness and image. Plants and animals can't glorify God, but man can. They do glorify God in their existence, in their reproduction, and everything else. But again, man was created in the likeness of God to have a relationship with God, to understand God, to worship God, to declare God, and to know God in a way that other creatures and objects cannot. 1 Timothy 4.10 comes to mind. 
that tells us, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. And in that sense, when it says, who is the Savior of all men, it's talking about being the preserver of all men. Not the Savior in the sense of saving the souls of all men. But God creates life and God preserves all life. And if God chooses to quit preserving it, then that life will be gone. And we all must experience that. And it happens to all of creation. So he preserves human life, all human life. He gives human life. He sustains human life. And if you, let me just ask you, what do you think would happen if God didn't do that? Well, chaos would not define it, let me tell you. Chaos would not define it. God sustains and prevents the chaos of I'll just use the word hypothetically, man's self-destruction. Because sin does not improve men. Men do not improve themselves because of sin. They just get worse and worse like the flood in 1,500 years. And that's the way things would be. And I don't know if man can destroy himself or what, but it's unimaginable what would happen. But God by His sustaining grace and goodness upon men prevents that type of chaos from happening on a worldwide scale. God is good. God keeps this old earth habitable for you and me. That's not a small task. If you study a little bit of science out of a science book, you'll find out that's a big task. And God's doing it every day and has been doing it ever since he created it and will do it until he decides he's going to stop doing it. He keeps it habitable. He gives us seasons. He gives us weather. He controls all of these things so that food can be produced and we can live and exist and that everything is not destroyed He's put minerals here. He's put resources here. And He has given man intelligence and ability to create and discover from the resources He has given them to be blessed thereby. We take it for granted. I know we do. I know we do. To some degree, every one of us does. I think about it probably too much. But the communication and transportation that we have in these days and time is absolutely unimaginable. And if you had tried to tell it somebody 50, 100 years ago, they wouldn't have believed it. Who would have believed it? You wouldn't have believed it. I'm in it and I have a hard time believing it. And let me say to you again, what a generation we live in. We experience these things. Our young people today have no idea how blessed they are. They're spoiled. Prosperity has spoiled them. They're like the generation after Joshua. They hadn't had to work for nothing or earn nothing. They think they're obligated to have it. But it's only the sacrifice of others that gets it, just like the children of Israel. I'm not condemning them. I'm telling you the situation. 
They don't know what it's like to be without. They don't know what it's like to be poor. They don't know what it's like not to have a flush toilet. And I could go on and on, could I not? But we have lived in a generation where those things were not readily available, and now they are to the most common people. I mean, God is good. God is so good. He's better than we can imagine. And this is only possible because God has given man the ability and the resources to do so. Now man is running around patting himself on the back. But man has nothing to praise himself for. And yet man is involved in praising everything but God. That's the sad part of the whole thing, you see. I don't want to spend time here much, but let's think about it for a moment because we need to. What is worthy to be praised? People? Achievements? Accomplishments? Deeds? Works? Yes, men do things that are worthy of praise, but they're little things. The greatest things with men are still little things. And men tend to continue to heap praise upon praise upon praise upon praise for little people and little things. When we have a big God and more wonderful works and goodness than we can even comprehend. Well again, that's the effect of sin, isn't it? But who is worthy of praise? It it saddens me. Again, it always will. How can I not grieve over this? That people get focused on human heroes and so forth and have their praise and not of God. What good is a baseball that's got Babe Ruth's name on it? Are you a better person because you shook hands with somebody who is royalty or occupies a prestigious position? You see, this all gets out of balance, doesn't it? I mean, people will stampede each other to see somebody. I mean, they do that at rock concerts and soccer games. It's unbelievable. Say, well, I'm a fanatic. Well, maybe I am, but I'm being realistic. I don't think I'm being a fanatic at all. What if just a little bit of that was God-centered and God-directed, as it should be. Then what would things be like? We need to just be careful what we praise. I mean, you know, is it praiseworthy? And if it is, compliment the person. Encourage the person. But we don't have to keep lauding things on them for centuries. God's worthy of that. Not humans. And another thing, not only does God do good things, God prevents a lot of bad things. There are bad things that happen. There was an earthquake in Morocco, killed a lot of people. They're happening here and there, and they do, don't they? But if God didn't restrain certain things, again, where would we be? If he just let man go, took a hands-off approach, and didn't restrain things like famines, pestilence, diseases, and things like that, then enter that into the mix and the chaos. And one thing I didn't mention, and I do want to mention, is look at what God has enabled man to do through the field of medicine. The things that people are able to be treated, cured, healed, 
you know, we grew up with polio and various other things, and now, and yet, you know, those things are gone and other things are here. But again, God has blessed man with the ability to research and come up with things like that. So again, God is good, and He is worthy to be praised. And His goodness, of course, just get this, this is not Sherlock Holmes stuff here, you can get this. God's goodness is manifested through His wonderful works. And what He does for you and me every day, it's like the manna from heaven, it's there every day. Everything God does is wonderful. (laughs) We have a wonderful God. And He is good. And what He does is good. And what He does is wonderful. And it's great. And all the adjectives and accolades we can come up with, He's worthy of them and more. He's not a little God. He don't do little things. He don't deal in minor things. Everything is big, great, and good when it comes to the God of the Bible. James said it probably best. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. There's only one source of goodness. There's only one fountain for grace. It all comes from one source, not many sources. It comes from God. And the greatest goodness God ever has given is what? In the person of His Son. In the plan of redemption. No matter what God has done for mankind down through the centuries, none of it and all of it compares to the greatest good of all. That is that God sent His only begotten Son whereby we might be saved by His atoning sacrifice. If we did not mention that, all of God's goodness then wouldn't be worth talking about. But God's goodness is climaxed in redemption. In drawing sinners to Himself and enabling them to praise Him. And that's exactly the second point. The redeemed, look at our text again there in Psalms 107. I like this. Uh, Let the redeemed of the earth say so. That's an affirmative. And that's what the redeemed do. Say in our hearts, in our lips, in our songs, in our worship, in our prayers, we affirm what? That God is worthy to be praised. He deserves to be thanked. His mercy is everlasting. And this is the song, this is the chorus, this is the life, this is the meditation of the redeemed. God is good. He deserves my praise and I want to praise Him. And also, if we, the righteous, the redeemed, are going to lament that others do not praise Him, we need to check things out in our own heart first and make sure we're praising Him or else we're the biggest hypocrites in the world. What is the lament of the righteous if the righteous are not praising God? If I walk out the door and say, Oh, men are not praising God. Well, did I praise God today? Did we praise God in this worship service? Did I praise God yesterday? We lament it because we do it. We lament it because we are engaged in it. Not just in a church service. Not just when you pray. Not just when you read your Bible. It's just like something in your subconscious mind that's there all the time. All the time. It's like salt in soup. It just permeates it. It's always there. 
It flavors your life. You can take five minutes to thank God. You can take a millisecond, but you can thank God and do it sincerely and you can do it fervently. And you can praise God in that and the redeemed do that. When God saved you, God opened your eyes to His goodness. We sat in blindness to the goodness of God. We sat in blindness to God. We sat in blindness to ourselves. But when the grace of God came to us, Man, you talk about a new creation. You talk about an unveiling of our understanding. That's what happened. You saw God. You saw God for the first time. And you found out his idea that God's not who I thought he was. Even though he was on the pages of Scripture all the time, I'd look at it and think him to be somebody else. I'd put him together to make him what I wanted him to be, not what he declared himself to be. And so it was fulfilled in us as it is those that are lost today. 1 Corinthians 2.14 For the natural man receiveth not the things of God because he's spiritually discerned. We couldn't see God for who he was, but when God saved us, when he quickened us by his grace, the Holy Spirit took the scales off of our eyes, and then we saw God. And we've been seeing God ever since, and God has just got brighter and brighter and bigger and bigger, and his goodness is seen in more places than we ever dreamed could be seen. And I love every minute of it. And I can't wait to what I can see next. But God has declared it. Here we had it, but we sat in darkness. And now we praise God that He opened our eyes, that we could see it, that we can begin to understand it, and that we can comprehend it. And our desire is that others would see what we've seen and glorify God. Do you have a greater desire than that today? I pray not. And we know that if others see it, God must open their eyes as He did us. Do you have a greater desire than that today? Oh, that all men could see the goodness of God that He has shown to me. And I'm not saying I see it all, and you don't see it all. But the portion I have seen is just glorious, and I wish everybody could see it. Ephesians 1.8 reminds me of that a little bit. It's a reference scripture where He... <clears throat> 118, I think, maybe. In 118, the eyes of your understanding being lightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want to go back to the word unveiling because that's really what it is. God was behind the thick curtain to our understanding, just like the Ark of the Covenant behind in the Holy of Holies. But when God saves you, God reveals Himself to you in ways you never saw and dreamed. I mean, you can be a little kid and be lost and say God is good. You can be an adult and say God is good. But until God saves you, you don't know nothing about the goodness of God. That's where it all starts. And then you see it everywhere. There's no place you can go. There's nothing you can think about that you can't involve thankworthiness for the goodness of God. For his wonderful works to the children of men. Man, it reminds me just like Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Remember when he got to see that vision of God sitting on his throne. And man, it, you might as well say it just about killed him. I mean, man, it so humbles us, but it so exalts God. That's what this is all about. Praising God is decreasing yourself as John said he must increase I must decrease and the more we increase in our praise of God the more we're going to decrease 
in view of ourselves. The text tells us all kinds of things. Just notice it with me, and I've got to press on here. The redeemed of the Lord are so because He hath redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. Verse 2. By the way, different people have different opinions as to who this is that is being written about here. Some think the children of Israel out of on the Exodus journey and so some of it kind of fits, some of it doesn't kind of fit. Some of it fits people from the captivity and not if somebody wrote this in the Psalms later and so forth and so on. But the, the safe ground is the redeemed. <laughs> it don't matter who or when or where. It's true. Whether they were literally redeemed from the Amorites or whether we are living here in this century and we've been redeemed from the enemy Satan who had us captive. We've been redeemed. We're God's people. And God, by His grace, redeemed us from the enemy of sin, the world bondage. Here again, He gathered them out of the lands from the east, west, and all. That doesn't fit the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, does it? But He gathers His people. He's the good shepherd. That's what He does. He gathers His sheep. What did He say in John 17? Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He said He would bring them. He said He would bring them from all nations, all tribes. But He brings them all the same way, and that's by His grace. And here we are, God's people, the redeemed, gathered unto Him, and yet we live in a world that we could call a wilderness in verse 4. And the way of the Christian, the way of the redeemed, is a solitary way. It's a lonely way compared to the world's way. The broad way that leads to destruction is the herd way. I can't imagine what the buffalo looked like when there were millions of them and they say it would just be like a black swarm. I, I, I never seen it, never seen anything like it, never seen pictures of it, never seen movies that could depict it in, a, in that sense. I don't know. I can't visualize that. But I can visualize the broad road to destruction that must, must be what it looks like. Masses. Masses. As far as the eye can see. The herds running to destruction. And yet the people of God travel a very lonely path through this world. But Jesus didn't not tell us that, did He? What did He tell us? He told us it would be that way. And let me tell you today, if you've never thought about it, those words never came from anybody who experienced loneliness any more than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the most lonely human that there ever has been. But he said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. If you follow me, you're going to have trouble. It's going to be a lonely path. It's going to be a hard path, but guess what? I'll bless you all the way. You just keep following. You just follow my footprints. I'll lead you. So, folks, today, don't be depressed. Don't get upset. And don't get discouraged because we're living in the wilderness of sin. Christ said it would be so. But he said he would take care of us there. The children of Israel spent a miserable 38 years in the desert, but God took care of them. And He got them to the destination, did He not? God was faithful. They weren't. But God fulfilled all His promise. And still better to be on the solitary way now and experience eternal bliss for eternity, is it not? Than to run with the herd down the broad road. They found no city to dwell in. I'm not looking for a permanent habitation in this world, are you? I, I've, I've told people, and they don't understand. I've told the doctor this. I said, I've got an exit plan. 
You know, I'm not looking for an insurance plan or a retirement plan or any kind of plan to hang around. I've got an exit plan. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm looking forward to, is exiting this place. I don't want to put down roots deep here. This is not where I want to be. I want to be where the real praise is going on and where it's going to be going on forever and ever and ever in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend. Can you comprehend what a chorus of myriads of ten thousands of ten thousands of angels is going to sound like? I mean, the quote-unquote Mormon Tabernacle Choir ain't a drop in a bucket to something like that. And it's going to be pure. It's going to be pure motive. It's going to be pure in its delivery. And then there'll be saints of God there too, right? It's found no city to dwell. I'm not looking for a city in this world, are you? Yes, we may be hungry. Yes, we may be thirsty. Yes, we may faint because of temptation, trials, tribulations, and things in this world. But guess what? Look at verse 6. This is what God's people have always done. This is what the redeemed will always do. And this is what God will always do because this is what He's always done. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. And because they're His, He delivered them out of their distresses. Now that don't mean He gives you everything you want the way you want it. He gives you what's best for you in your situation. In verse 7, He didn't just point the direction and tell us where to go, but what does the Bible tell us? David wrote 23rd Psalms. What does he say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He what? Leadeth me. What John 10 say? The good shepherd leadeth his sheep. Leads them forth by what? Always the right way. Always the right way. The problem is he's not bad leadership. The problem is we're bad followers. That they might go where? Where we want to go? No. Where's best for us? And where do we where do we really want to go? I said I had an exit plan. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you the truth. There's cities in this world I don't care to go see. I don't go care to go see. I'm like I feel a little bit like Jesus in the temple. And they say, Man, look at that. Look at that. I don't matter to me. That's not the city I want to see. I want to see that one up there. I want to see the one that Abraham looked for down here but wasn't here. And he knew it wasn't down here. He knew the one he wanted was built not with human hands. And that's what Hebrews tells us, doesn't it? Let's look at it quickly here. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. That's what, that's what we're doing. We're walking through this wilderness. We're pilgrims, sojourners. This place is strange to me. Is it strange to you? The things that are going on down here are strange. The people are strange. They're occupied in strange endeavors. They're crazy. It's insanity that we're looking at today. Why would a child of God want to stay here? 
dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. I've lived in a few states, a few houses, a few places, some better, some not so good, and so forth and so on. But our real aim, verse 10, is we're looking for a permanent habitation, a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're looking for. And our lamentation is that others do not desire and praise the God that we praise. If you desire that, you want others to desire it. If you're a child of God, you're not a selfish child of God, you want to share it. You want others to have the peace, joy, blessing, knowledge, understanding that you do of God. You want others to know what the height, breadth, depth of the love of God is. You want to know how, you want them to see God's grace, God's mercy, His forgiveness, His attributes, His perfections, that they would praise Him. You just want God to be praised. And if I could make the rocks and stuff cry out, I'd, be in, I'd do it because I'd want to see God praised. It's not a competition. It's a universal desire. And it's very grievous. And it always will be. It always has been to the redeemed of the earth and it always will be. To see people so blessed by God's goodness when they're so evil. So unthankful, so profane, so in denial, or whatever to the God that blesses him. John chapter 1 and verse 5 comes to mind as we wrap this up. Speaking of Christ in verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That means what we've been saying here, that man, because of sin, and his deadness and in sin, in spite of all the evidence of God's goodness, doesn't see it, doesn't affirm it, doesn't acknowledge it, and never says thank you. And this was what was on David's mind. This is what he was lamenting about as he wrote this psalm, obviously because he said it four times. Oh, that man would do what they are obligated to do and what's demanded to them to do. That they would praise and worship the God of greatness, goodness, and acknowledge all He has done, is doing, and will do. Give God the glory. And another grief is that instead of giving it to God, give it to somebody else or somewhere else. Nowhere probably early on in our Bibles is this more demonstrated than when Moses was on the mount and Aaron made the golden calf. I mean, just, just for a moment, bear with me and think of this. This really speaks of the blindness, the sinfulness, the depravity of a sinner. Okay, think with me. Think hard. Just for a moment. What all they see in Egypt? Hmm. <laughs> They saw more in Egypt than you and me will ever see as far as things actually, miracles, right? What did they see at the Red Sea? Besides it being parted, the enemy floating. What did they see at the waters of Meribah? You know, I mean, they'd seen a lot just before they got to Sinai. And then Moses is on the mount and they get bored and restless because they're sinners. 
And so they pulled their earrings off and their bracelets and their necklace and the gold which they spoiled the Egyptians and gave it to Aaron. And Aaron's foolish enough to make them a golden calf. And you don't no more get it made and it's still probably hot and shining. And they bow down to it and say, this is what brought us out of Egypt. Blasphemy. Utter blasphemy. And I'm not saying that just to point a finger at them. This is sinners as we know it. This is you and me as we know it. We enjoyed God's goodness and God's blessing all the days of our life to the point God saved us. And did you ever once say thank you and mean it? And if you're lost today, have you ever thanked God who has given you life and everything else you've got? And I don't care what you've worked for and what you've earned. If God didn't give it to you and give you the means to do so, you would not have it. You are what you are by the grace of God, whether you're saved or lost. And we desire that people could see that. And sometimes they do when God saves them. I close with Nebuchadnezzar's example. I won't read it, but if you want to read it, it's in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30. Where he walked out there in his high and mighty position, place, royalty, riches, and everything. And I always call it patting himself on the back. Because if ever a man patted himself on the back, this man did. Self-consumed, narcissist, pride, arrogant. And he says, look what I've done with my hand. And he didn't even get the words off his tongue and God struck him down. And God showed him who really deserved to be praised. Every sinner needs that same lesson. Oh, we like to praise self, don't we? We were engaged in praising self. But when the grace of God came, we learned who really deserves to be praised. And it's not us. And it's not our fellow man. It's our Lord. It's our Savior. We don't see nothing in a golden calf. We don't see anything in what we've done or what men do. We see a God who created all is over all and who has all the days that this creation has stood, has blessed it with His goodness and His wonderful works. Read with me the last two verses of 107 Psalms, if you would. You read this psalm when you go home, and then this will be an emphatic summary. The righteous shall see it. What? The goodness of God, His wonderful works. The righteous shall see it. You not Maybe you see it or you don't see it. And rejoice. Oh, today, have you caused for rejoicing? Has God saved you? Has God opened your eyes to see Him and His goodness? Have you experienced it? All iniquity shall stop her mouth. Now, notice again the contrast. The righteous, the redeemed's mouth's going to be open in praise and righteous, in rejoicing. The iniquity's mouth's going to be stopped. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Who is wise? The person that knows God is good and that praises Him for it. You see the goodness of God? You experience the goodness of God? You thank God for His goodness? Do you rejoice in His goodness? Do you praise Him? Do you observe these things? Are you wise or are you foolish? Do you understand the goodness of God? Do you know the goodness of God? If you do not, there's only one way you can. Be obedient to the gospel. 
Do what God says to do. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge you're nothing in His sight except an unworthy lost sinner that deserves to be punished and has deserved to be punished ever since the moment you were born. But God has been long-suffering to you, at least up till now. If you're alive and breathing, God has been long-suffering to you. You know nothing of the goodness of God, but the goodness of God is that Christ was sent into this world to save sinners. And I go on record in closing as saying, Christ Jesus is God's greatest good to mankind. But there's all kinds of goodness that comes out of that good. And the redeemed of God rejoice in that. And again, you can do the same if you're lost today. Repent and believe the gospel, and these things are all yours. Because the redeemed will say so and rejoice. What a blessing. Let's praise God today, shall we?